Nothing is finished. Not really. The lines and forms, the textures and consistencies, the molecular structure and synaptic connections, a tree or a river or a cloud or a heart. It's all raw material in the hands of a god with a penchant for creation, a taste for metamorphosis. This is a story about transformation, about one thing giving way to another at the behest of the divine. It's a story about what's in a name, about the dangers of self-delusion, about the inevitability of doubt. And it's a story about the unreasonable, inefficient, spectacular ways of God. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. A staff strikes rock and pierces sand. Moving in rhythm with its owner, the sturdy timber leaves a second set of prints alongside the old man as he journeys across yet another mile of uninhabited wilderness. He shields his eyes with weathered hands. His face bears unmistakable echoes of Jochebed and Amram, each of them reflected variously in the angle of his cheekbones, the thickness of his brow, the shape of his nose, the way he smiles when he sees Moses. And now, at long last, after a secret exit from Egypt and weeks of walking, Aaron stands at the foot of the mountain of God, at the command of God, and grins at his little brother. You're old, he says, perhaps. You're older, Moses shoots back, surely. They embrace kiss one another on wrinkled, tear-stained cheeks, and sit down in the shade. Moses has so much to tell him. Moses looks out at the bowed heads of the Israelite elders. He smiles at Aaron, who shares his joy. It's happening. They've returned to Egypt with miraculous signs and news of deliverance. Yahweh has heard your cry. He has seen your misery. He is ready to act. The elders have believed the good news and rejoiced. And now they worship Yahweh, the almost forgotten God who never forgot his people, the God who will now wrench the Hebrews from Egypt's clutches and bring them to freedom. Moses takes a breath, nods to Aaron, his mouthpiece, and they make their way west to Pharaoh's palace. What is it like for Moses to enter this palace if this is where his adopted mother raised him? Walking the floors he walked as a child, 
Brushing his fingers along the columns, he strode past as a much younger man on his way to dine or to do business or to attend concerts or to meet with his grandfather, the king. Everywhere, surfaces gleam, servants bustle, courtiers lounge. Ancient faces, sculpted in profile and painted in vibrant hues, look on from the walls. Statues of deity stand guard, their animal-headed forms coaxed from sandstone and polished smooth. Nobles point, whisper, and laugh. Chairs finely crafted from cypress and wrapped in gold, fringed linen, so soft to the touch, draped in doorways, the smell of roasted lamb, simmering onions and warm fig cakes, a torrent of smell, sound, and sight. Forty years. The pharaoh Moses knew as a boy died while Moses was in Midian, and now a new pharaoh has taken the throne. But he's not new, is he? Like the king before him, this one sets himself up as deity, oppresses the vulnerable, points his people toward gods who are not Yahweh. Moses eyes the statue and stone carvings, exalting Amun-Ra, sets his jaw as he remembers the bush. Pharaoh calls the brothers into the throne room. Though the Hebrew scriptures will not name the king, many will posit that this is the fabled Ramses the Great, or in the Egyptian language, Usumatra Setepenra, the chosen one of Ra, a peerless ruler even among the pharaohs. He sits upon his grand chair, his flared headdress concealing the ring of red hair tracing his balding skull. Hook nose and high cheekbones frame eyes thinned in appraisal. How did Moses get this meeting? Surely it's difficult to gain an audience with the emperor of the greatest kingdom in the world. Pharaoh must know of Moses' history in Egypt. Has he met Moses? Were they close? Moses wastes no time, strides into the chamber, and nods to Aaron, who looks at Pharaoh and speaks. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Moses looks from Aaron to Pharaoh. Pharaoh looks from Aaron to Moses. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? Disdain and dismissal drip from his words. Moses' stomach drops, surely. This is not a good start. Pharaoh smells a bit of panic, perhaps, and leans in. I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. If the king waves his hand to dismiss them, Moses nods again to Aaron. Aaron swallows. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Pharaoh's eyes narrow. Strike us? Does he mean strike the Israelites or all of us? Is this a threat? He tightens his grip on the royal flail, cobalt and golden beads strung like bits of bone in a cat of nine tails. His nostrils flare in anger. Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. 
Do they know how many Hebrews there are? The amount of work I get from them every day, the nerve of these two, this presumption must not go unchecked. And the whole premise of this request is suspicious. This, this is not about religious ritual. You are stopping them from working. Pharaoh waves the brothers away, and this time it's obvious. They will not get another chance to leave alive. Moses didn't even have a chance to perform the miracles. Perhaps Yahweh did not anticipate Pharaoh's iron will. As soon as Moses and Aaron are gone, Pharaoh sends an order to the slave drivers in charge of the Israelites. Those lazy, if they think they have time to meet their quotas and take trips to the wilderness, let them try this. They're scattered everywhere. The delta has become a verdant anthill, tiny bustling shapes moving, stopping, moving again. Men hunched among stands of trees, women bent low in fallow fields, older children bowing in alleyways on roadsides along creek beds, all grasping, grabbing, gathering whatever they can. Straw is good, anything remotely similar to straw. Green grass, twigs, palm fronds will work. The first day they do this, it's a difficult task. After a week, the land is picked over. Desperation sets in. Mattresses are plundered. And what is it like for the scavenging Israelites three weeks into Pharaoh's latest decree? The same back-breaking quota of mud bricks to be made, but the regular deliveries of straw, an essential ingredient in brick production, the thing that gives structural integrity, strengthens the bricks so they don't just crumble in the sun, those deliveries have been yanked away. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. Those were Pharaoh's exact words, delivered by the slave masters a punishment for the brazen request made by Moses through that spokesman of his. And so every day, before dawn even, now the Hebrews fan out, foraging, rummaging, scrounging for whatever stubble they can find. Then to the production site, mud from the Nile dredged from rectangular pools dotting the riverbanks and hauled to mixing pits, sand, cow dung and whatever straw or straw substitute they've searched out that day, kneaded together by loin-clothed Israelites bent at right angles over the slop. Others carrying buckets of this mixture to still others stationed amongst vast arrays of wooden molds. The fortified mud then packed into the molds and left to bake alongside the children of Abraham in the Egyptian sun and slave drivers watching all the while, baton in hand, quick to rise from their seats and thrash those who do not move quickly enough. The slaves are much slower these days, given their new responsibilities. No matter, nothing a little lashing can't fix. Everywhere, rods crack against flesh. Bruises form like inky storm clouds on arms and legs and backs and necks. Skin splits, blood escapes through parted walls of tissue, runs red, rains on the soil, 
cries out from the ground. Why haven't you met your quota of bricks today or yesterday? Snide Egyptians berate the Israelite overseers, motivate them to pick up the pace. Finally, the Hebrews make a plan. He's agreed to see us. This is good. The Israelite overseers nervously walk into Pharaoh's palace, rehearsing their appeal. Surely he'll listen to reason. He wants his cities built. This is just counterproductive. Surely he'll bring back the straw. If Pharaoh will just show mercy, we'll be free of this unreasonable burden. Not long now. Tomorrow we'll be making bricks the way we did before. How quickly abuse diminishes a person's dreams. But the meeting does not last long. The overseers get a verbal beating to add to their injuries and are summarily dismissed with no changes to the draconian policies. No one tells Pharaoh what to do. What are they going to... How can the people possibly keep... This is all the fault of that Egyptian interloper. And just then, on their way back from the palace, the overseers run into Moses and Aaron. The brothers have been waiting to see how the appeal went over, but before they can ask, the overseers accost them. May Yahweh look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. No, that can't be. Moses' head spins. He looks around at his people, at their abject humiliation and relentless suffering. Where is Yahweh? What is he doing? This is not right. Evening. The sun dips low in the sky. Blazing air begins to cool. Painted snipe appear along the water's edge. Feathered night jars flit about in unpredictable lepidopteran flight. Palms flutter in the breeze while wide-eyed pharaoh eagle owls move silently above the lush fields, scanning for mice. And Moses returns to Yahweh. Does he remove his sandals? Does he kneel? Does he light a fire to invite the incandescent, bush-burning presence of the God of Israel? Does Moses wonder if Yahweh can hear him this far from the mountain? Why, Yahweh? It's all he can say at first. Images of anguished Hebrew faces flash in his mind. Egyptian whips crack in his ears. Moses' face is a collage of emotion, anger, sorrow, guilt, and more than anything, betrayal. Why have you brought trouble on these people? Is this why you sent me? Tears flow now hot and bitter. Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on these people, and you have not rescued your people at all. These people? Your people? Why does Moses not call them my people?
from the fire, or out of the air, or inside Moses' throbbing head, Yahweh speaks. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. The hairs stand up on Moses' neck. The shepherd's skin turns to goose flesh as the deity speaks. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. But he won't. He made that abundantly. This is not some backwater governor. He is Pharaoh, majestic ruler of the great house of Egypt, the mightiest. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. Why does he seem to be fixated on this? Why does it matter what his name is? Why does he keep mentioning Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And why does it matter whether anyone knows him, fully or otherwise? Noah, a god, fully. What does that even mean? I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. <laughs> foreigners. Maybe Moses has something in common with these men after all. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Okay, just please do these things. Moses thinks to himself, surely. Moses and Aaron relate Yahweh's words to the Israelites the next day, while they slave away at their brick quotas, or dress their wounds, or hungrily wolf down what little food they have for their lunch. And it does not go well. They shake their heads, or curse him, or ignore him entirely. But they do not listen. It's then that Yahweh says to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this country. Again? And what, that's it? Just tell him to... Moses almost loses it. If the Israelites will not listen to me... The words come slowly, frustratingly so, as usual, but erupt as hot magma in the direction of Yahweh. Has he bothered to take his shoes off this time? 
Why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Look, comes the voice. If they were at the bush, would the flames burn brighter and hotter at this point? I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Harden his heart? And he's not going to listen? Well, then why? Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my army, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Pharaoh glares at the brothers. These brazen old men with their dirty fingernails and dusty canes standing before him again as if he doesn't have anything better to do. Around the room, Pharaoh's officials hover, attentive, sycophantic, constantly reading and adjusting to their prophet, priest, king's mood. At the moment, they're delighting in a throne gauntlet. The air is thick with Pharaoh's request. Demand, really. Moses has asked again for permission to make camp in the wilderness to worship, and instead of a flat refusal, Pharaoh has changed tack, told these brazen Hebrew leaders to perform a miracle. They say their God is with them. Let's see. Moses' heart beats faster. Yahweh said he would do this. And then, as Yahweh instructed, Moses looks at Aaron and nods. Aaron nods back and raises his staff into the air. Pharaoh's eyebrows rise. Oh good, they're going to try some. Aaron whips his arm downward and releases his grip, hurling his staff at the polished floor of the throne room. Pharaoh rises perhaps to see better. As soon as the staff hits the stone, it changes. The rigid timber goes limp, bends, curves. Wood grain morphs into a tighter, more dimensional pattern. Scales? Pharaoh's officials scatter reflexively, but they do not look away. Pharaoh and his executives are not the only ones with shock on their faces. Aaron and Moses look on in surprise. The serpent is growing. Fangs materialize as the head of the staff opens wide, very wide. Wider than the mouth of the snake Moses saw at the bush. Wider than the one Aaron saw when Moses showed him the signs. The writhing form before them twists and stretches, pulled and shaped by some unseen hand. Larger, larger, until the creature they see before them is no garden snake, but what can only be described as a sea monster, a serpent of the deep. Its jaws agape, the head swivels around to Pharaoh. Its eyes flash as they make contact with his, as if it knows exactly who he is. 
Everyone now is scattering. Pharaoh clutches his scepter as he scrambles backward in his throne. His serpentine headdress jolted askew in the chaos, the golden cobra at his forehead knocked off balance. How did they... In my palace, in the presence of Horus and Osiris and, and Osiris's great mother, Renanutet, the rearing cobra with the head of a woman, goddess of nursing, and rearing children, goddess of childbirth and destiny, the, the one who measures out one's years and the horrible events that will befall them, personal guardian of the pharaoh. Where is she? But in moments, fear is eclipsed by obstinacy. Pharaoh springs to action, calls to his sorcerers to replicate this magic. Who is Yahweh? There is nothing he can do that the great Pharaoh cannot. Egypt's frantic sorcerers begin chanting, praying, calling upon their vast pantheon of gods to manifest themselves in a display of mirrored power. Enchantments wreathing the hall now, the magicians throw down their staffs. Moses watches as the rigid timber goes limp, bends, curves. Wood grain morphs into a tighter, more dimensional pattern. Twisting forms, gaping jaws. The room is suddenly full of monsters. Moses and Aaron share a wide-eyed glance. And the sorcerers, are they surprised? Have they done things like this before? In enthroning these gods of theirs, have they tapped into a very real dark power, given name to soldiers in a swarming unseen army of shadows? An army that's just as powerful as... But then, Aaron's staff, or what used to be Aaron's staff, turns on the Egyptian dragons and attacks. Its mouth split wide, Yahweh's creature plunges with full force down on the frenzied eyes of one of the magician's monsters. Those eyes and its snout and its forked tongue, the entire skull disappears into the mouth of the Yahweh dragon. Jaws clench, teeth cut, and the sound of cracking cranium echoes in Pharaoh's throne room as the head of the serpent is crushed. But the Yahweh dragon is not finished. It gulps down the entire body of its adversary and then turns on the rest of the magician's monsters. Pharaoh and the sorcerers, and Moses and Aaron for that matter, watch stunned as the creature assaults and devours every one of the snarling beasts. It is a loud, graphic few minutes. When it's finished, Aaron walks tentatively over, bends down, and grabs the heaving creature by its tail. Immediately, curves straighten, scales disappear, soft tissue becomes rigid, eyes vanish. Aaron, staff in hand, looks to Moses, who looks across the room to Pharaoh. The floor of his throne room is smeared with blood, the air thick with the smell of flesh and death. There are parts 
perhaps left behind by the victor. Pharaoh surveys the carnage, and on his face is not alarm, but loathing. This episode has changed the king of Egypt all right, but just as Yahweh said, it has not softened him. Get out! Moses nods to Aaron, and they turn to leave. So be it. The water of the Nile morphs, turning from black to gray to golden as dawn breaks, the sun illuminating the holy river. A pharaoh watches the great orb rise, a testament to his work as high priest of Egypt, his success in calling forth Amun-Ra to once again make his radiant journey across the sky. The king wades into the Nile to bathe. What a wonder this river is. A line carved in the sand by a divine finger, life brimming from the watery scar. Papyrus tufts flutter in the morning breeze. White lotus flowers rest alongside the floating leaves of blue water lilies, opening to receive Ra's light. Nile perch dart around Pharaoh's legs, their navy stripes easily visible in the pellucid water. The king's attendants keep an eye out for hippopotamus, though they're rarely seen on this stretch of river. A river that carved and watered a valley, that gave birth to a civilization. The civilization, chosen by the gods. In the distance, the cities of Ramses and Python rise brick by brick, Hebrew slaves hard at work already to meet their daily quotas. But thoughts of the slaves bring to mind Pharaoh's recent audience with their leaders. Lazy fools, deluded by misplaced religious zeal, destined to become nothing. And Moses, who does he think he is? What man would dare stand against the one who holds ultimate power? Pharaoh! The king's head swivels around to the bank of the river. There stands Moses, flanked by Aaron, staff in hand. Before Pharaoh can say a word, Aaron shouts, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. If the king opens his mouth to respond, Aaron cuts him off. This is what Yahweh says. By this, you will know that I am Yahweh. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. Pharaoh's lip curls. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Aaron looks to Moses, and at his brother's signal, Aaron stretches his staff over the water. Pharaoh's officials stand frozen, their eyes moving involuntarily toward the river. Immediately, the clear water becomes opaque, viscous, crimson. Pharaoh flails his arms in alarm, surely splashing blood as he tries to get to shore as quickly as he can. 
On the bank, he spits and splutters, his face speckled red, his body robed in dripping scarlet. Does Moses make eye contact with him before he nods to Aaron and turns to go? If he does, all Moses sees is rage. Seven days. It's been seven days since Yahweh turned the Nile to blood. It wasn't just the Nile, either. Moses and Aaron somehow made their way to streams and canals, to ponds and reservoirs, Aaron raising his staff above every body of water, blood filling creek beds and lake bottoms. Even the water in the Egyptians' storage vessels was suddenly gone, replaced with syrupy, undrinkable fluid. On the first day, it was shock. Shock and fear spread like wildfire across the river valley and throughout the delta. Then, on the second day, panic. Thirsty men and women digging furiously alongside the Nile, frantic until they saw fresh water rising from the mud. By day three, the surface of the coagulated once water was congested littered with the risen, rotting bodies of dead perch, tilapia, catfish, tigerfish, carp, soft-shelled turtles, and water snakes. By day six, the crocodiles and hippos who left the river immediately had given up their search for water, gasping and dying in the relentless sun. And now, on day seven, this decreation is complete. An appalling smell shrouds every inch of Pharaoh's Egypt. The unmistakable scent of death. And Pharaoh? Pharaoh seethes. Finally, he has to prove to himself that his magicians can replicate this feat. He calls for them and they exchange confused looks, surely, when he commands them to turn some precious store of water to blood but they obey and succeed. Pharaoh, satisfied, reclines in his palace and sips his imported water, determined to wait this nonsense out. He plays board games, perhaps, with his firstborn son. Such a smart young man, the kind of son with whom you could build a dynasty. This will be one of the last moments Pharaoh spends with his child. Thank you.
Hey, Justin here. I hope target audience blessed you. This is the third part of a 10-episode season we're devoting to the story of the Exodus with a brilliant all-original score composed and created by Kendall Ramsour. That is live cello you're hearing, played by Kendall himself. Now, if you're thinking, oh, wow, this is a whole thing, yes, yes, it is. Kendall and I have been hard at work on this season for months. We are hard at work on it now, and we will continue to devote ourselves to sharing this incredible story in a way you've never heard it before. Now, this is my full-time job, and it's a huge commitment of time from Kendall, and the only way we can do it is with your help. So if you want to join hundreds of other listeners like you who believe this kind of kingdom storytelling is something the world needs, head to holyghoststories.org, click give, and use your money to enable people all over the world to encounter Yahweh in one of his favorite stories. All right, I want to share some exciting news with you. I will be bringing Holy Ghost Stories live to York University in Nebraska next month. All the enchanted goodness of Holy Ghost Stories, but with live storytelling from me and live accompaniment from some incredibly talented musicians. It will be an unforgettable night of story and song, and I would love for you to come. It's happening Monday, March 13th at the Bartholomew Performing Arts Center on York University's campus. And thanks to the university's generosity, admission is just $5 at the door. York is about an hour outside of Omaha, so if you're in the area or can get to the area, you should definitely join us. You can find more at holyghoststories.org. Okay, about a thousand of you received my bi-weekly email called The Latest. This week in The Latest, I'm sharing some amazing behind-the-scenes stuff about this episode, including, and I'm not making this up, a photograph of the Pharaoh I describe Moses interacting with. It is amazing. You can get The Latest delivered to your inbox every other week for free. Just sign up at, you guessed it, holyghoststories.org. Links in the show notes. And for real, a photograph. All right, time to say thanks to some incredible people. This episode was brought to you by the generous contributions of Debbie Sluss, Scott Gerhardt, Christy Merrill, Benjamin Hollow, Eden Leggett, Brendan Leggett, Ken and Patty Cole, and Sarah Jackson, alongside the champions of Holy Ghost Stories, our patrons on Patreon. Thanks to each and every one of you and... A shout out to the Reconteurs, Deborah, Riley and Autumn, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Vicenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Debbie, Scott and Susan, Derek, Maddie, John, Ricky, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken and Patty, Alyssa, Sloan and Jamie. On behalf of listeners around the world, thank you. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Our composer is Kendall Ramsour. Our sound engineer is Joel Dolly. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and direction by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>